Good morning, gardeners. I am Louisa Pringle Cameron from Charleston, South Carolina, bringing you another episode of The Charleston Gardener. Episodes 5 and 6, you heard a brief history of gardening in Charleston and were told the story of how some of our most famous plants made it to this area. Today's podcast on iconic Charleston gardens is sponsored by Mrs. Holland Williams in support of the Historic Charleston Foundation. Historic Charleston Foundation is an advocacy organization advancing the mission of historic preservation which now has evolved into more than a movement to simply save historic buildings. The foundation has broadened its scope into balancing the needs of modern society with protecting the sensitive fabric of the historic district. Communities must be vibrant to prosper. With vibrancy comes inevitable growth and development. The mission is to address modern society's needs, mobility and transportation, tourism, livability and growth, while protecting and preserving the architecture and material culture of Charleston and its low country environs. Historic Charleston Foundation champions the historic authenticity, cultural character, and livability of the Charleston region through advocacy, stewardship, and community engagement. The foundation envisions a livable Charleston that honors its historic places, its people, and its culture. Each spring, Historic Charleston Foundation presents a month-long festival of houses and gardens. In addition to general tours, there are many special events, lecture series, exclusive tours, and an antique show. Visitors to the city are always talking about Charleston gardens and hoping to find a way to either hire a private guide who can let them peek into a few gardens or get tickets to one of the historic Charleston Foundation's spring tours of gardens. Sometimes the Garden Conservancy has open days during the May Spoleto Festival. There are preservation society tours in the fall and special fundraising tours by local clubs, societies, and occasionally institutions, but there is nothing similar to Garden Week in Virginia. Just taking a long walk perhaps with plans to end up at one of many sidewalk cafes, is a visitor's best bet to see houses and gardens without tickets in hand. Here on the Charleston Peninsula, many of us already have intimate garden spaces due to the buildings, walls, and fences around us. Our gardens have become integrated outdoor rooms, spaces for quiet reflection, rest, work, play, and entertainment. Through the years, we have become well-known for these charming courtyards and gracious garden spaces. What makes a Charleston garden so intriguing? Well, for one thing, many of them are behind, not in front of, historic homes. And some of the most interesting are private courtyard jewels hidden away behind tall brick walls. On a casual stroll down King Street or Lower Queen Street, you can see wrought iron gates at the sidewalk, protecting lovely walkways along the houses leading to something that looks ever so interesting beyond the turn at the end. 
the often whimsical and always colorful profusion of window boxes on Trad Street in particular, and other quaint streets in general, promise that gardeners have delightful areas that are out of view. Some grand houses, such as those on Legree and Meeting Streets, have gardens that can be viewed from the street, through handsome gates and fences. The Nathaniel Russell House, one of historic Charleston Foundation's museum houses, has a lovely garden that one walks through to access the shop and the ticket office for tours of the house. Another ticket office at the back of the garden is behind the Victorian Calhoun Mansion, a significant private property on Meeting Street that has visiting hours. House tours exit through the back door of the Hayward Washington House on Church Street, where a remarkably restored two-story kitchen building is also on tour, complete with appropriate accoutrement. The garden, maintained by the Garden Club of Charleston for the Charleston Museum, is an attempt to reproduce the formal design and the plants that would have been in the garden when George Washington visited Charleston and stayed in the home for two weeks in 1790. Privacy is paramount in the historic district, where houses called tenements have common walls, noisy buses, and a parade of horse-drawn carriages block traffic daily on many of the streets while blaring and calling out the same spiel over and over, and tourists without a clue will just walk onto a property and start clicking cameras. There is actually a city ordinance in effect prohibiting the use of cameras on private property without express permission. Years ago, a generous and proud garden owner put up a small, professionally made sign at the entrance to her garden announcing that if the gate were open, visitors were welcome to go in and take a look. This became legend with the carriage drivers, who incorporated it into part of their tours as, if a garden gate is open, you are welcome to go in. So everyone had to start closing their entrance gates, and especially their driveway gates, which had previously been left open for convenience. The well-meant sign was eventually taken down. What makes the gardens so interesting is that each and every one is different, especially because of the surrounding architecture and the unusual shapes of the spaces available for a garden. Many properties still have dependency buildings, which once were kitchens, living quarters, laundries, stables, and carriage houses. Fortunately, in our climate, we are able to grow camellias, sasanquas, loquats, and gardenias in part shade, and these evergreen plants can easily be espaliered on walls, fences, and sides of buildings. Small gardens in the midst of the densely populated historic district often have little full sun. Many climbing roses perform well with partial sun and clamber up along the walls. A favorite rose that is often used is Lady Banks, which is thornless and needs good support. Fragrant wisteria is a romantic addition to some of these gardens, but needs stern pruning discipline to keep it in bounds. In the April 2021 issue of Charleston Magazine, there's a most informative, beautifully illustrated article by Anna Miller titled Charleston in Bloom, Ten Flowers That Define Holy City Gardens Through the Seasons. All of the plants just mentioned above are in the article, along with the yellow Carolina jessamine, the magnolia, the crepe myrtle, noisette roses, the tea olive, osmanthus fragrance, and of course the azalea. This group of plants is used in many different ways throughout the city, 
and helps to define its gardening style. The famous gardens near the city display them in abundance. Over the years, I have known and visited many of the gardens in the historic district. The landscape architect, Luttrell Briggs, whom I never had the privilege of meeting, designed and executed dozens of gardens near where I grew up. His designs were always formal, but allowed for practical areas to park the cars and hide the less attractive accoutrement of daily life, such as garbage cans, tool sheds, laundry lines, and play areas for children. Mr. Briggs used all of the iconic plants just mentioned, in addition to boxwood, hollies, oleander, and ligustrum, a type of privet. His list topped at about 30 favorites, and of course he worked around and with existing trees such as the live oak, the camphor, and mature crab apples and willows. Brick was used extensively throughout for borders, steps, and walkways. Mr. Briggs enjoyed making patterned walks with a jumble of brick slates, orchard stone, and other pavers, and it became one of his signatures. Boxwood is the signature plant for the formal garden seen in the city and on country landscaped estates, as it is widely used for borders, hedges, topiaries, and specimen plantings, even in window boxes. Unfortunately, there is a boxwood fungus blight that is destroying gardens globally. The fungus, Calinectria pseudonaviculata, was first confirmed in the United States in 2011. It thrives in hot and humid conditions, is fast-moving, and is devastating. According to many sources, it can be kept under control with disciplined pruning and spraying, but it has not been eradicated and still presents a threat. Growers are working on resistant varieties. It's ironic that so many of the designs and plantings that helped make Charleston Gardens famous were made up of plants that were not native at all, but mostly imports. Luttrell Briggs himself was an import from New York State. The Carolina jessamine, the Yopon holly, Ilex vomitoria, and the magnolia are native. Oleanders, originally from the Mediterranean, came to the United States by way of Jamaica to Galveston, Texas in the 1840s. Slow-growing Podocarpus macrophyllus, another import, is a good substitute for yew and is actually related to taxus, the real yew. The Far East was a wonderful source of plants for our local nurseries, as many, such as the camellia and the azalea, readily adapted to our climate. Why, you might wonder, weren't more native species used in gardens? I think that the most obvious explanation is that so many of our native plants are not easily tamed and shaped, and they often do not produce the profusion of blossoms seen on the imports. The Florida dogwood is an exceptionally nice small native tree that is full of blooms in the spring. The redbud, Cercis canadensis, another small tree often used in Charleston gardens, has lovely magenta blossoms that come out before the leaves. Both of these natives can tolerate partly shady spots in small city areas. Finally, one of the most important features defining the iconic Charleston garden is architecture. There's a great deal of structure in these yards, courtyards, and gardens behind the main houses. Historic dependency buildings, previously mentioned, can be charming focal points and excellent supports and backgrounds for plant material. In my book, Charleston City of Gardens, there are several photo examples of this. Sunken gardens, pedestals with urns and statuary, small pools, and fountains are popular. 
so are gravel, crushed oyster shell or brick pads, and flagstone, orchard stone, or brick patios. Pergolas, follies, and other sheltering structures are often features. There are dozens of properties with swimming pools that are usually tastefully incorporated into the landscape. The plant of the week is Tithonia, the Mexican sunflower. Easy to sow and tall to grow, this sturdy plant produces a mass of pretty spade-shaped leaves and brilliant deep orange flowers that are heat tolerant. So, come stroll rain or shine at any time of year and see the gardens in and around our beautiful city. You can go to my website, www.gocharlestongardener.com, where you can join the podcast and perhaps buy a book or two. Thanks, as always, to my friend and producer, Daniel Patrick, whose own popular podcast is Mandolins and Beer. And as Benjamin Disraeli once said, how fair is a garden amid the trials and passions of existence. (laughs) ¶¶